Welcome to Gulf Coast Life. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. Suicide in seniors is a huge problem that is not well known. The age group with the highest rate of suicide in 2020 were age 85 and older. The second highest rate was age 75 to 84. Tonight on WGCU-PBS-TV at 9 p.m., we'll show a documentary called Facing Suicide. In conjunction with that, and to help understand the local connection, we have a conversation today with Angela Lopez, Director of Access and Outpatient Services at David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health in Naples, and Derek Dustin, Clinical Director of Outpatient Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services at Charlotte Behavioral Health Care in Punta Gorda. They joined me in the studio. I wonder if we could just start by talking about how common is depression and suicidal thought in seniors, if you could address that, maybe Derek? So depression is one of the leading causes to suicidal ideation and death by suicide. We recognize that there is an underlying mental health issue that one is going to be experiencing that dies by suicide. The rate is 90% of those that die by suicide have an underlying mental health issue. The statistical population is our third lead-in population that dies by suicide is 25 to 34 years old. Our second lead-in population that dies by suicide is 75 to 84 years old. And our first lead-in population that dies by suicide is 85 and above. And that's where we just want to be cognizant of that and recognize what may be those warning signs that can contribute to depression to pick up on and get those people to the correct level of care. Angela, maybe you can speak to this. Do you know what it is in that particular population, especially the 85 and older, that is that makes suicide seem like a good option? Yeah. So data shows that individuals 85 and older are struggling more with chronic disease and illness, pain, um, but also isolation. And so isolation is one of the biggest triggers for suicide and, and suicidal ideation as well. And I just want to, just because I didn't know what that term meant for a long time, suicidal ideation just basically means thinking, thinking. about ending your life, Correct. right? Where it's not, I, I misspoke before I did, I said it sounds like a good option. I don't think it ever seems like a good option. It just seems like perhaps a way to stop the pain. Well, and individuals who are thinking of suicide do, they're considering it as an actual good app option for them. It's not a rational option. Um, um, it's or it's at, the thinking is irrational. Um, however, they're considering it as a absolutely as an option for them. I'm interested in what you said about isolation, especially just coming out of this pandemic. Or I know we're not really out of it yet, but it's it's still with us. But can you talk a little bit more about that? Maybe in terms of why are older people more subject to that? Are there things they can do to kind of keep people around them and how do you how do you cope with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, so we know that individuals who are in the aging population and that age range um, do struggle with loneliness. Um, when we've asked individuals, that usually has been one of the things on the top of their list that they're struggling with. And lots of times as a result of the changes that they're experiencing um, because of the stage of life that they're in. So one of those changes could be death of other loved ones, such as their spouse, um, siblings, 
Um, many times, at, you know, at that stage of life, their parents are also gone. Um, and um, kids are grown. They've moved. They're sometimes out of state, out of country. Um, and, you know, because of lots of loss in different ways, some, some by deaths and some by moving, it does result in individuals feeling lonely. And when they start to feel lonely, they can also kind of sink into that loneliness and perhaps not be as proactive with trying to uh, fight that off, for lack of a better word. And so then it just exacerbates. Um, and, and so that that's, tends to be what we see. And how do people tend to make their way to you, Derek? I'll direct this one to you. When you're depressed, it's hard to ask for help. So the more depressed you are, the less likely you are, I imagine, to ask for help. So how is it that people do find their way to you to get treatment? That's a great question. What we're trying to do is provide as much awareness as possible about the abilities to access care and opening the doors to access care via teleservices or coming on site, uh, case management, and as well as any community resources providing awareness about what is available to access care. And they're going to access through many avenues, I should say, and that's going to be either going through the county, um, identifying the resources through their case management, and then linking them um, after identifying what their stresses may be and talking a little bit more about them and engaging them and linking them to Charlotte Behavioral Healthcare. Um, we're also going to see that coming from family members as well, too, with concerns about their loved ones and getting them to the appropriate level of care as well, too, with the Charlotte Behavioral Healthcare. And what is the treatment like once once people make their way to you, Angela? What does the treatment look like? I'm just trying to, if somebody's listening and they're, and they're thinking about reaching out for help, I just want to kind of disabuse them of the notion that it's a that it's a scary process. Yeah, so I can talk about David Lawrence Centers. And um, when, you know, as mental health professionals there, we understand and realize that it can be very intimidating to walk into, a, you know, a therapist's office or an appointment to receive um, mental health services, whether it be psychiatric or, or, or therapy. Um, so we understand that it can be intimidating um, and it's scary for an individual. Um, we we do try our best to uh, making make it as less intimidating as accommodating as possible for an, for an individual. We do focus a lot on um, allowing that person that's walking in to direct the conversation, to direct the session, and what they want to talk about, what they want to express without any pressure put on. Um, and, you know, if an individual wants to talk for a, uh, 20 minutes uh, versus a whole hour appointment, that's fine, too. So it's really about what makes them feel comfortable. We want to um, ensure that they are comfortable and that they um, can relax in the appointment and they can come back. Um, and when they can come back, then um, perhaps we can um, start working on some more issues as well. Oh, that's good to know. So it's sort of, it can be sort of customized. Very Yes, it can be very individualized. And people are coming in for all different reasons, um, even though perhaps uh, people might be struggling with similar symptoms. There could be 
underlying factors that are different and that vary between everyone. So our treatment is tailored differently and individualized um, based on their individualized treatment plan that we make with each person. Um, So for some, it could include a specific form of trauma therapy. For others, it could be a different type of therapeutic approach that would work best for them. Um, So it's just very different depending on that person's individual needs and really based off of, you know, that first couple appointments and seeing what really could work for them. And we find it very important to get their feedback and hear from them on what perhaps they feel or know does work for them and what doesn't. I think um, everyone's kind of an expert in in themselves. And so they would definitely be able to tell us, um, you know, what possibly could work and what, you know, doesn't for them. And also, if if it's not if the chemistry isn't right with that first person they talk to, I'm sure there's a, there's the option for them to switch. Yes, absolutely. So we know that um, one person might not be a great best fit for that same person for everyone. And so we have a variety of therapists with different um, experiences, um, both life experiences, um, but as well as certifications and specific qualifications. We have... Um, you know, individual therapists of all different uh, practices. And so if one person feels um, perhaps that they are not a good fit or match with the therapist that they're currently seeing or their mental health provider that they're currently seeing, um, they can definitely reach out to them. We always encourage them to to, to speak to the therapist themselves. We are, we know we're, we're not going to fit be a good fit for everyone. Um, definitely does not hurt our feelings at all to let us know that we might not be a good match together. Um, and um, if that's uncomfortable to do and speak with a therapist, they can definitely reach out to the supervisor or the scheduling team and express their concern and say, you know, I'd like to request a different therapist or mental health professional, and we'd be happy to do that for them. Mm. Another thing I wanted to just get back to, Derek, maybe you can speak to this. We talked about uh, depression, but I know with, with seniors and we talked about isolation too, but it, there's also sometimes a lack of mobility in in uh, seniors, and that can be its own kind of isolation. Where if you can't, if you feel like you can't get out of the house, how does Charlotte Behavioral Health address clients who have limited mobility? Yeah, we're going to work within their limited mobility as well too, and we have a drop-in center, the ShareSpot drop-in center, so it's peer-led and peer-run and engage in those that may be struggling with severe and persistent mental illness. Um, And we're going to meet them where they're at. We're going to try and provide transport services through Charlotte Transit as well, too, to get them there and get them engaged in the community um, and have them openly talk and and, and work through activities throughout the day as well, too, in that share spot program. And and disability is one of the things that we want to talk about as, you know, kind of like the five warning signs. Um, It's the five Ds, depression, disease. We're going to have the disability as well, too, in regards to mobility. Um, We're going to have the disconnectedness as well, the social isolation. And then there's the deadly means. And that's one of the statistical um, aspects of those that die by suicide are utilizing a gun. Um, The 52% that die by suicide are using a gun. 3.9 3.9 times uh, the rate of men completed death by suicide, and those are completed by a, a gun as well, too. Um, so it's really just being aware of all those warning signs and trying to take an inventory of that. And, and it's a challenge because as a family member or a close friend, we may not see those warning signs as much. 
um, because we're just we're engaged in them and we're involved in their lives and we may not see them withdrawing as much, but it's small, subtle changes that we're going to see. And we just have to pick up on and, and, and acknowledge what we're seeing, talk to them by caring, and, and then working with them to help get them to the best level of care from then on out. Do you mean that men are 3.9 times as likely to complete suicide? Is that what you That mean? is correct. Wow. Um, women have a higher rate of suicide ideation, but men have access to weapons. And that is what is contributing to the higher rate of men actually completing suicide and dying by suicide. Wow, that is, these these statistics are very bracing. It's really, uh, I was saying to someone else before, I had no idea that the problem was this large. I'm really glad we're, we're talking about it today. If you have a loved one or a friend or something who you're worried about and you know they have weapons in the house, is there anything you can do? Is there any recommendation you have? Yeah, yeah absolutely. We do encourage to be able to counsel individuals against using lethal means. And so that's a therapeutic conversation that we have with the client and the family. So it's really important at that point when we've identified someone has suicidal thinking that one of the questions that we do want to know and ask for their safety and the safety of others is their access to weapons and getting their family members, um, you know, involved in that conversation. We know that statistics show that if an individual has time, even seconds to think before from the time that they're you've decided to complete to, you know, act on their suicidal thoughts to reaching and pulling the trigger of a gun, if they have the more time that they have, the less likely it is that they're going to complete that task. And so we counsel against the use of lethal means. So whether that means to remove the weapons um, and depending on what symptoms they're experiencing, what their thoughts are, but it could be removing the weapons from their home. It could be locking the weapons up in a certain way. Um, It includes um, removing the the bullets from the gun as well. Um, so there's just different uh, things that we can advise and counsel um, family members particularly. Um, and when individuals in a state of crisis, sometimes um, what you say and counsel in that moment can might not stick because our mind is in crisis mode. So that's why it's so important to have that conversation also with family members. And so family members are aware of the struggles and how to prevent um, uh, a suicide. So it sounds like as many obstacles as you can put in the way of, like you said, separating the ammunition from the weapon, locking up the weapon, getting even getting the weapon out of the house if possible. That's every obstacle you can put in that person's way is is another chance for them to save their life, it sounds like. Yeah, Derek? And I, I kind of want to, I guess, change the word obstacle to safety plan, just like mm-hmm. hurricane preparedness as well, too, that we want to be aware of and we want to make sure that we have steps and procedures for that. So I just want to kind of put a positive spin on that, that we're safety planning with that patient and the patient's family to make sure that we're ensuring the safety for all in that aspect. There are uh, laws in Florida as well, too, that if someone is struggling with mental health issues, that they can have the guns removed by law enforcement as well, uh, and the judge would oversee that. Interesting. What if someone is estranged from their family? They don't want it. They're not comfortable talking to their family or the, you know, either way, the kids are not comfortable talking to the parents or how to have that uncomfortable conversation with a family member who doesn't want to have it. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And and one of the things that we want to do is we want to identify what are those warning signs that may be there and be open to talk to them about it. it it's There was uh, historically stigma associated with talking about suicide and that suicide would lead to actual uh, contemplation of suicide or the act of suicide. And we know that's not the truth. What we do know is that that's going to open up that communication line that, hey, someone does care because they are struggling. They are thinking irrationally if there is possible thoughts of suicide. And that's going to allow them to talk about it and process it. And the key is, is just getting in there and talking to them. Um, If it's not the family member, is there a close friend that's talking to them and observing these warning signs as well too? Uh, overcoming mental health issues and or substance use issues, we recognize that it's that connectedness that's going to help overcome that and build the support system to continue on from that as well, too. Mm. And Angela, you may be able to speak to this, but I understand that uh, Collier Sheriff's Office sends out, has mental health workers on staff that they sometimes send out for calls. Is that right? I, I don't know that much about it, but I wonder if you can speak to that. Yes. Um, so, Collier County Sheriff's Office in collaboration with David Lawrence Center's, uh, David Lawrence Center has a mental health intervention team, um, which works very closely with uh, the Sheriff's Office in Collier County. Um, And so that allows a sheriff officer, an officer to together with a licensed clinical social worker to present at someone's um, location who might be um, struggling or having a, a mental health crisis or who perhaps needs even some encouragement to make it to their medication appointment because we know that they're at very, very high risk for suicide. And so sometimes when situations or behaviors occur, there's sometimes an underlying psychiatric condition. Um, And so the sheriffs, you know, previously an officer would present to the home and that can be very intimidating for individuals. Um, And so um, we do, they do have, and they have their own also um, uh, mental health professional as well that will go out um, with them um, during certain um, calls. And have you, I don't know how long that's been in place, or do, have you seen any any improvement in, in outcomes? Or? Oh, absolutely. Mm. So it's been in place for a few years, but we absolutely have seen improvement. Um, we've seen an increase in individuals linking to services and uh, maintaining treatment as well, which a lo- lots of times a contributor to uh, increase in depression and suicide is because individuals drop out of treatment as well. Um, and so we've seen an increase in um, linking with services, um, remaining in services, and then overall more sta- mental stability for individuals. Oh, wow. That's terrific. God, I'm glad to hear that. And speaking of, we're kind of on the emergency, <laughs> in the emergency mode. But Derek, we, I know we we all just introduced the 988 number. Uh, are you seeing any difference in the calls you're getting? Are you? Are, do people find it easier to remember that number 988 for having a mental for calling for a mental health crisis yeah great question and what we're trying to do is provide as much awareness about that new number and that's a national crisis hotline so we're not seeing any direct information coming in from those crisis calls Um, but that is definitely the the purpose and drive of that number is to have uh, a recognizable number to contact and it's for any level of care anything that you're experiencing mental health related that number is there for you to again but call and reach out and have support 
So that's good to know. And we will put all of this info on our website, too, so that if people are listening, they don't have to be scribbling down or remembering. But, uh, yeah, 988 is a much easier – it's like calling 911 now. It's, it's, it's uh, as you said, it's na- a nationwide mental health crisis number, and they will link you to someone in your area who can help you. So that's that's a wonderful – thing. How about gut health? <laughs> Just to t- very much switch uh, switch gears here. I know there's been some work recently a- around this that some mental health is linked to gut health. And I don't know if either of you feels comfortable talking about mm-hmm. that. So there are lots of conditions that are um, known or uh, the data shows and represents that are linked to gut health. So it's one of those things that we always go back to saying if we can get enough hours of sleep, have the right diet, the right amount of exercise, it can help with our mental health. But also if we're struggling with um, any kind of gastrointestinal issues, we ha- there is data that shows that individuals who are struggling with their gut health do have a higher probability of anxiety, but as well as depression. And also some symptoms related to perhaps trauma as well. And it, sometimes it's what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Um, conversation that we've had around that, but um, absolutely, I've absolutely heard any uh, correlation between those two. Mm. And do you address that when people come in for help, or yeah? So um, when so we do when we complete our clinical assessment on an individual, we it's a, a full clinical assessment that includes um, medical related questions. So if somebody does identify those issues in gut or any other medical issues that they may may be having, one we assess whether that could be or is known to be a contributor to mental health, but we also identify whether that or find out from that individual if they are already receiving treatment or seeing someone for that. Um, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they, they, they perhaps haven't followed up on it. And so our role is to definitely to encourage that individual to follow up with their primary care provider, whoever the specialist is, depending on what the ailment that they're experiencing, so they can speak with them about um, you know, identifying a, a, if a treatment plan is needed to address those symptoms. Okay, great. Thank you. That's very clear. I wanted to ask about Medicare, too. Obviously, a lot of these older folks are on Medicare. Is there any sort of limitation? Does Medicare bring with it limitations to the to the care that they can get? It does. And, and what that is, is that we have to have a licensed clinical social worker credentialed with Medicare to be able to deliver counseling services to Medicare recipients. And that's something that we'll see as a challenge and a barrier of access to care is the caseloads associated with patients that are uh, having Medicare. Um, They're 65 and above. They're going to be engaged in services for long term. Uh, At that stage in um, severe and persistent mental illness, what we're doing is we're working at maintaining Uh, We may not see a drastic improvement. We may not see a drastic decline. But what we're doing is we're providing counseling services to maintain. So that counseling service session is going to last a lot longer. And I shouldn't say session, but length of care is going to last a lot longer. So our caseload is going to build and we're going to be at a threshold there to how many we can accept on that caseload for a licensed clinical social worker. Whereas those that are younger and engaged in Medicaid, uh, we're working at brief interventions to work on the here and now, help them overcome the anxiety, the depression, and 
have them go out and use those coping strategies they had learned in counseling services on their own and independently. Um, and that's one of the challenges that we see with Medicare. Are you seeing, have you seen a big growth in the need for services lately? So we at the David Lawrence Center have seen a growth. We've seen, we've definitely provided a lot more. We provide a lot more services each year. Um, I was looking at some of the data and the data does show that um, in regards to suicide from 2000. 19 to 2020, because I don't think the 2021 data is out yet, suicide has actually declined. But it is known that usually during a natural disaster, pandemics, suicides um, do, I guess you could say, level out or decrease, but only for while during the pandemic or during a uh, natural disaster. And then it increases uh, after that. Um, So, you know, we have Nationwide, we've seen a decline in suicide, um, though we've seen an increase in um, depression and anxiety. As well as substance use. Oh, yes. Yes. True, true, yes. Um, And that's not different with aging population. The aging population, um, you know, is, you know, can experience substance use as well, especially if there's depression. Sure. Yeah. Do you, let me end on a more positive note. Do you, do either of you feel like the stigma against seeking treatment for mental health is going down at all or even the stigma around suicide i mean i don't think the stigma around suicide is decreasing from my observation but please speak to that and and are people feeling do you think people are feeling more willing to get help for their mental health i think we're definitely seeing uh, a lot more awareness about it and a lot more that are linking those to services that they observe as experiencing some of those warning signs that may contribute to suicidal ideation i think that's one of our goals in charlotte county as well too to reduce the overall suicidal rate we're in the schools delivering our signs of suicide presentation from the sixth to twelfth grade population to help educate and provide awareness and we're promoting awareness through community outreach events through uh, providing Narcan for those that may be struggling with substance use or family members that may be struggling with substance use to help with the overdose from opioids and reducing the respiratory um, paralysis that happens there. The Narcan goes in. uh, There's no side effects to it if someone is not experiencing an opioid overdose, but if they are, that helps with that as well, too, and that respiratory paralysis. Yep, Narcan is provided free for it to individuals, so... And it's, mm-hmm. it's available by mail as well, too. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, you can decrease the association of stigma by reaching out via mail uh, to request that as well, too. Oh, that's good to know. And how do you feel about that, Angela? Do you see a lessening of stigma or how, how is that? Yeah, so, um, yes, I do see that people are more willing to talk about their feelings, their emotions, their struggles. I also... Um, and seeing, we've been seeing that individuals are not just more likely to talk about it, but they're actually starting to more likely seek treatment um, and ask for help. What I feel like we need to do better at is to reduce the stigma in the aging population. So we're, see, I, we're seeing a lot more people willing to talk about and seek treatment, a little bit more the individuals that are below 65, especially the uh, children and teens and young adults. We're, we're definitely seeing um, lots of improvement in reducing the stigma there. But I do feel like there is still a myth that's out there that individuals who are over 65 don't complete suicide. And that's mm-hmm. just not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just feel like 
the important thing is to um, be aware of mm-hmm. signs and symptoms to look out for and staying connected um, with individuals, staying connected with, you know, it, it could be neighbors. It could yeah. be if it's not family, you know, um, even just uh, appointments, joining a club, um, uh, some kind of organization. But staying connected uh, with individuals um, definitely is a protective factor against suicide, especially um, when we're talking about a population that the number one trigger is loneliness and isolation. And maybe if you have a neighbor or somebody that you could check in on, or especially during hurricane season, I think, too, we all need to kind of check in on each other, make sure we're prepared for that. And then we need to, you know, make sure we're prepared for our mental health, too. And then provide an awareness about volunteering opportunities for the 65 and above community as well, too. That helps with the overall connectedness, but then gives them a sense of purpose where they have had some of those purposes in life vanish. They're maybe retired. They're no longer raising their children. They're no longer helping with the grandkids because maybe they moved off. So just having that sense of purpose again and and volunteering opportunities can help with that. That's a great idea. Thank you to both of you so much for coming in today and talking to us about this. This is such an important topic and and not not well uh, understood, I think. So I really appreciate your, your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was WGCU's Carrie Barber talking with Angela Lopez. She's Director of Access and Outpatient Services at David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health in Naples, and Derek Dustin, Clinical Director of Outpatient Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services at Charlotte Behavioral Health Care in Punta Gorda. If you are thinking about harming yourself or attempting suicide, tell someone who can help right away by calling or texting to the number 988. You can also find links to information and resources discussed during today's Today's episode on our website, wgcu.org gcl. Tune in to WGCU-PBS-TV tonight at 9 for a documentary calling Facing Suicide. Our show today was produced by Carrie Barber and Tara Calligan. Our director is Richard Chinqui. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.